Our Father, week after week, that is our prayer. We, we long to know you more. You, uh, to know you is eternal life. And uh, we know certain things about you, and we, we glory in that. But we know there's so much more to know about who you are and, and the vastness and the depth and profundity of your love for sinners, of which we are a part. We are, um, we are ones who qualify uh, for that love in that we are so in need of it. So, Father, um, might this worship service, might our time spent together, might the word come alive, might the sacraments be a refreshment, might the singing uh, thrill our heart, might the praying uh, take us for a visit into your throne room, might all of this uh, distill into our knowing you more. Not to know about you, we're not looking for some new Bible fact. What we're looking for is a greater knowledge down at the depth of our soul, in that place where only you and I go. That's where we want to know you, Father, at the base of our being. Our Father, we um, are a mixed bag of need this morning. Some of us bring um, huge concerns. Others of us are enjoying prosperity and family, and, and we're enjoying health. Not all of us, Lord. There are some whose souls ache over what's going on in their families, their marriage, their children, their own bodies. And so grant them a word from heaven today, Father. All of us. uh, A refreshing um, sound that wings into our hearts because it has come from your throne room. Uh, Meet our needs, Father. This is not... Um, designed so that all of our needs can be met, but it is designed to get in touch with you, and by so doing, we will have our needs addressed. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of uh, living in a land where we are so blasted free. We're free to say what we want to say and go where we want to go. We're free to do what we want to do. But uh, knowing Jesus Christ, we have found that following him is what we want to do, it's where he leads, is where we want to go. So by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, take us wherever you would want us. And Father, um, take these monies too. They are, um, they are hard-earned and they are, uh, they are sacrificial. Uh, my prayer, Father, is that you would expand our hearts so that we might learn how to sacrifice even more. All for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right, let's go back to the book of Acts and uh, continue our study there. We're really going to wing it this morning because I left my glasses in my office. And uh, I can't see the Bible or my text or my notes. So, um, And um, this is always something we like to do that's briefer than, than the others because we want to prepare you to meet the Lord at the table. So let me read the text real quick, and, and we'll um, see what we can get out of it. Acts chapter 17 at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ 
had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, and but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed, they departed. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Gang, have you ever attended or even perhaps visited a church with Berean in the name of it? That is the name of the church. They're all over the country. I found, um, I found two of them in the city of Memphis. There is the Berean Baptist Church on Goodman Road, and there is the Berean Missionary Baptist Church on Rains Road. Now, I don't know the difference, but uh, two Berean churches, one on Goodman Road, one on Rains Road. Perhaps you've uh, been in a Sunday school class, uh, the Berean class. Ever been a part of the Berean class? Um, well, maybe so. There's a lot of them around. But um, have any of you ever heard of a... Thessalonian Baptist Church, or a Thessalonian Lutheran Church, or a Thessalonian anything church, or any of any of you have ever been a part of a Thessalonian class? Oh, I go to the Thessalonian class. Well, probably not. And there's a reason for that, you know, and the reason is found in this text. Uh, we're told in this text that the Bereans are applauded for their fair-mindedness. In fact, some translations use the word noble. They were more noble than others. Verse 11 describes them as people who um, eagerly searched the scriptures so that they could find out what was true and to know and to embrace that which was true. And that is laudable, ladies and gentlemen. And, and hopefully our friends over on Rains Road and Goodman Road are just as diligent about searching the scriptures as this. In fact, maybe the people over at 9750 Dogwood or Wolf River Boulevard... Maybe they're just as diligent in doing what the Bereans did, too. At least I hope so. But the reason, ladies and gentlemen, that nobody ever put Thessalonian in their church name 
is really not very hard to find. It's, uh, it's pretty easy from this text why uh, the Thessalonians aren't exactly uh, emulatable. Um, these guys were mean. They were, uh, they were liars. They were angry. You know, it wasn't enough to run Paul out of their town on some trumped-up charges, which, of which they're most guilty. You know, verse 7, they talk about Caesar. They're not interested in Caesar. But not only are they interested in getting Paul out of their town, in verse 13 we're told that they send some of their representatives over to Berea to get him out of there, you know. We don't want him here. We don't want him there. We don't want him anywhere. Get rid of that man. You know, um, Paul writes a couple of letters to the, Thessal- to the church that happened to come out or happened to be founded in Thessalonica. He writes 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Well, in 1 Thessalonians... Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I preach to you the gospel in great conflict. Yeah, boy, did he ever. All kinds of conflict. That's all Thessalonica is noted for. At least it's all that's mentioned in the, in the scriptures. These were mean folks, and aggressively mean they were. What are they so mad about? What's so, what is it that's so upsetting to them? Is, is it Paul? Is Paul so offensive? You know, I, I know a lot about offensive uh, personalities. <laughs> Is that the reason they're so mad? Maybe a personality conflict? Maybe. But, um, you know, a clash of personalities doesn't seem to explain this kind of sustained anger that you see on the part of Thessalonians. I I think the cause of the offense is pretty easily found. It's found in the text. I think it's mentioned a couple places in there, and and, uh, I want to point you at that. And and to to tell you basically, um, it made the Thessalonians mad. It makes everybody mad. <laughs> it wasn't that Paul was so offensive. It's that the message is so offensive. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 2 and 3. Um, Paul is in a Jewish synagogue reasoning with Jews on three straight Sabbaths. Uh, he is, we're, we're noticing, explaining and demonstrating from the scriptures, by the way, that Christ must suffer and must rise again. By the way, which scriptures was that? New Testament wasn't written. It was only the Old Testament that he had. But he's using their book to discuss with them this promised Messiah. So he takes their book and points out something that they're supposed to know already. And he points them to a thing or two in their book. And they're furious. You know, I I can understand if they would be embarrassed or maybe... uh, Frustrated, You know, preachers don't like to be asked questions they can't answer. I can understand uh, maybe even being um, challenged, but furious? Um, why fury? You know, it, after all, that is their book that he's using. Well, the reason I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is found in four words. It's found in those words in verse 3 that Christ had to suffer. You know, um, it's not Christ, it's not that word that they're offended with. They love that that Greek word Christos, which is just the word for Messiah. They love that word. It's not suffer that's so irritating. Um, You know, it's not, um, it's rather odd, but it's not completely out of the question. Maybe when he was, the Messiah was delivering them from the Romans, he had to suffer a bit. That's not the offense. The offense is the word had to. You don't remember this, I'm sure, but back in August when I preached this series on Acts 14.22, it was a five-part series, and um, the, the, uh, the text was, we must, through many trials, enter the kingdom. 
And I told you then that trial wasn't simply inevitable, that it was necessary. And I told you about a little Greek verbal form. It's a little Greek particle, di. It's always translated the same way. It is necessary. You must. Uh, it, it, it talks of necessity. It was back in Acts 14.22. And guess what? It's over here too. It's in Acts 17.3. He had to. It was necessary. He must. And by saying that, ladies and gentlemen, he's a, Paul is pointing to something. He's assuming something. He, he's implying something. He, he's, uh, he's putting his finger on an issue. There was something that caused the necessity. What was that? Sin. The Messiah had to suffer because there was no other way to deal with people's sin. It was necessary because sin made it necessary. The problem that is created by the foulness of men's sin could only be dealt with in one way. And that is the sinless Savior must do for man what he couldn't do for himself. You would think people would love to hear that. Some do. Many do. But, ladies and gentlemen, that is so offensive to men who are proud. They're proud of their own accomplishment. They're proud of their own righteousness. They're proud of their own record. And so for Paul or anybody else to announce to people who basically think themselves to be good people, to say to people who think they're already good people in the first place that they're not good, and what's more, they cannot remedy their own condition, that is deeply offensive. It's an affront. It's an insult. To say to somebody who thinks they're, you know, a pretty good person in the first place, you're telling me I'm not good and I need something, somebody to do something for me. There's one other part of this that I want you to see in verse 7, where um, in this frenzied mob, they make an accusation about Paul's preaching. And the accusation is, you know what he's doing? He's preaching that there's another king. Oh, that's another part of the offense. People don't want to hear that there's another king. You know, they, we, love, we love to be our own king. You know, um, I love to refer to that song by, I heard it just the other day, about Tears for Fears. That everybody wants to rule the world. Yeah, they do, don't they? You do. I do. Have you ever, have you ever crossed locked horns? With your teenager and told them, oh, no, you're not. You ever done that? What'd you see? You who are school teachers, you ever told your students, oh, yes, you are. Sit down. I told you. What'd you see? You You ever, you ever, um, uh, been engaged in that kind of conflict where the result of the conflict or the conversation was, you're not in charge, I'm in charge? How did they respond to that? They liked that? Nope. Because um, everybody wants to rule the world. At least they want to rule their own little world, don't they? You know, some of us who came to Christ as adults having now been subdued by grace, we remember. We remember those failed attempts at governing our own lives. Don't we? It ain't pretty. 
It ain't pretty by insisting that we have rights to control our lives. It ain't pretty, is it? To be told that we must yield to another king that does nothing but give rise to a, uh, a sense of rebellion in our own hearts. Any king who threatens my right to rule my life, I don't like that. You know, there's a, there's a parable in Luke 19, the parable of the minas. <laughs> uh, a mina is a measurement of money. And Jesus gives this three different people ten minas, and then he goes away. The nobleman goes away, and, and after he's been gone a while, they get together and they say, send him a message. Send him somebody and tell him this. Just tell him this for us. We will not have this man to rule over us. We don't want that man ruling over us. We don't want any man ruling over us. We don't want anybody ruling over us, do we? If you ever go to many high school graduations in the spring, uh, if, you, if you go to those things, um, um, very often, uh, invariably, some little valedictorian is going to quote the words of W.E. Henley in the Invictus. It matters not how straight the goal how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, guys, here's the message that is welcomed. Here's the message. Can you imagine somebody leaning over their sink in the mornings and they splash water in their, in their face and they dry their face off? And they look into the mirror and say, I am invincible. That message is welcomed. But this one is despised. It was despised in that culture. It's despised in this one. Gang, um, one of the things that I, and and I'll quit, but one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this little vignette is it's interesting to me what they don't do. That is what the Thessalonians don't do. No, no resident of Thessalonica ever says to Paul, Now, Paul, son, you are wrong based on the following argument. Nobody engages Paul and says, I, I object to your position due to the fact that you have violated this law of logic. Nobody ever does that. What they do, however is that they resort to name-calling. They lie about him. They appeal to the government. But no one ever stands up and says, for these reasons, this is untrue. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound in any way familiar, ladies and gentlemen? Gang, the problem today is not that Paul did not speak truth. The problem is that the truth that he spoke is a truth that those people hated. And here's the truth. You're sinful. Just like me. We can't save ourselves. And because of our sin, Jesus had to die in our place. And if you embrace him, he will become your king. People hate that. They hated Paul. And 
they'll hate anybody who preaches it today. Real quick, just a couple of applications. Number one, Paul used the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. The Old Testament is not a book about law. It's not about sacrifice. It's not about ethic. The Old Testament is a book about Jesus. The Old Testament, and so is the New Testament. It's all about Jesus. And secondly, I just want you to know that our message has not changed. It's the same message, ladies and gentlemen. And because it's the same message, the offense toward it is still the same. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can be offensive. Yes, indeed, and I, I have been guilty of that. But primarily, it's not the, it's not the messenger. It's the message, because our culture, as well as this one, recoils when he hears of sin and a need for a Savior to remedy it. Tell him he needs therapy. Tell him he needs education. Tell him he needs sensitivity training. And he'll say, fine, yeah, I'll do that. But tell him, tell him he needs a Savior King. And all the while, the real issue is not, is not that the truth we bring is so mis- or unproven. The issue is the culture hates the truth. And so they resort to name-calling. We're bigoted, intolerant, archaic, unscientific, um, narrow-minded. They resort the government because the message is so life changing my friend if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you have chosen to be a non-Christian because of all the name calling you've heard could I challenge you to do just this much just, just wrestle with this The issues are not intellectual. The issues are not academic. The issue is your offense with Christ and his claims on your life. That would be a very good, honest first step. Just wrestle with that. Here's the second step. After you've done that, be assured That your sin, as great as you might know it to be, is not unpardonable. And if you'd like to know more about the death and sufferings of Jesus Christ for sinners, we've set a table for you. Our Father, I do pray that um, there might be no one within the sound of this voice that has chosen to remain outside the household of faith because he is or she is convinced that there's some kind of um, intolerance in the gospel. Father, there may be all kinds of intolerance in me and in the people who embrace the gospel, but this gospel is glorious. It is far better news than we ever dreamed. And I pray that men and women might be confronted with this simple truth that the thing that they resist is not the hypocrisy of the church. It's not the 
the fact that churches are asking for money. It's, the issue is men don't want to know of their sin and they want to rule their own lives. Just like the Thessalonians. So Father, might today be the beginning of an honest search for the truth. For the rest of us who have been subdued by grace, we come to be reminded of what it was that made it necessary for Jesus to die. Our sin. We pray in Jesus' name.